we believe that as we engage with companies, as we ask them to improve their disclosures, as we work with them to improve their practices, it is a much better way to get to the outcome than simply excluding them from client portfolios. That was Hadir Cooper, Global Head of Equities at Bearings. And this is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings. I'm your host, Greg Campion, and I'd like to welcome you to episode number two of season three of Streaming Income. Throughout the season, we'll be bringing you in-depth conversations with experts on asset classes like EM debt, high yield, equities, real estate, and more. Remember, if you'd like to receive our latest insights as soon as they become available, you can subscribe to the show by searching Streaming Income on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. On today's show, I spoke with Dr. Hadir Cooper, Global Head of Equities here at Bearings. Based in London, Hadir oversees a global equity team with more than 50 investment professionals responsible for managing a variety of developed and emerging market strategies. Our conversation focused on the topic of ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors in relation to equity investing. We talked first about why managers like Bearings have placed so much emphasis on continuing to advance in this very important area. We also discussed how ESG factors are actually implemented into the investment process, covering concepts like the integration of ESG factors into fundamental analysis active engagement over exclusion, and why it makes sense to focus on forward-looking dynamics as opposed to a company's starting point. Of course, there are a variety of ways in which different managers are approaching ESG, each with their own pros and cons. But I hope this conversation, by providing a window into the very deliberate approach taken by Hadir and team, will help to further inform your own thinking on this topic. So with that, please enjoy this conversation with Dr. Hadir Cooper. All right, Hadir Cooper, thank you so much for joining me today. Very good to be here. I'm excited to have you back on the show. This is your second time on Streaming Income. And today we're talking about a subject that I know you are really passionate about and something that I've heard you speak a lot about and help our firm get our arms around, and that's the topic of, uh, of ESG. And specifically, we'll be talking about ESG within equity investing. Um, our listeners may be aware that we released an episode a few months back on ESG and fixed income, but ESG and equities is really, you know, in a lot of ways, a different animal. Um, equities, as you know, uh, has been further along in this ESG journey, and, and your team's really been uh, I would say at the forefront of that, you know, implementing ESG in your process for over five years. So I want to talk about uh, the mechanics of how you and your team do it uh, and really get into some of your specific philosophies, because I think there's a lot uh, to unpack there. But maybe before we get into the how, uh, I'd like to start off with the why. So um, if you wouldn't mind, you know, giving our listeners a sense of why you and the team take ESG into consideration so strongly as part of your investment process? As a fundamental analyst and bottom-up investors, we have always incorporated some kind of ESG in our analysis, much less formally than we are doing now. 
And governance was really at the forefront of all of that. So understanding how management are looking after companies, um, balance sheets, growth prospects, strategies, etc., was fundamental to what we do. And the rest of it was all financial. But now we're seeing that there is more to it than that. And in the last few years, we have started to understand that um, really direct and very overt incorporation of other parts of environmental concerns, for example, or social issue, issues on top of governance are crucial for us to understand the company holistically, to understand what the company uh, is about and its direction of growth for the future. Um, so the first reason for us to very overtly look at ESG and integrate it into the investment process really comes about from us trying to understand all of the uh, opportunities and risks that uh, face a company. And therefore, what we're trying to do is to, on top of the traditional financial analysis, understand um, how the company moves, navigates its obligations in terms of ESG, but also the opportunities that that ESG provides it. To us, that means that we can therefore have more confidence in our investments going forward, but also understand very clearly how the management is affecting the company, how the environment is being looked after, and any social issues that are around the company, whether it is in terms of product or its employees, that the company is navigating uh, as we invest in it. That's just a fundamental part. But on top of that, we seek and aim to identify actually sustainable business practices uh, that the company is, um, is doing. But for us, we are also signatories of UNPRI and uh, UN Global Compact. And for us, we take this very seriously. We think this is a, a very clear way of us um, seeking to improve the practices of the companies that we are investing in, particularly improvement of disclosure, but also uh, navigating, improving, and utilizing the resources that the company has very, very efficiently uh, for the environment. So really, it kind of comes down to a combination of economic return on the one hand, and I thought it was really interesting that you mentioned it analyzing these risks and also opportunities from an ESG perspective sort of gives you that increased confidence around your forward-looking models. I know you and your team model out uh, earnings five years into the future. So it's interesting that that kind of increases your confidence level. And then obviously, as you just mentioned, the driving positive change with the companies themselves. So that twofold approach as to why you're doing it, I think is really, is really interesting. When you have conversations with clients. I'm, I'm curious, you know, Bearings is a, is a global firm. We serve a variety of clients from pension funds to insurance companies to endowments, wealth clients, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but as you have conversations with them, I'm curious, you know, what you're hearing, what are Bearings clients asking you for when it comes to ESG? And then also, how has that changed? Because if there's one thing that's constant in this space, it's it's change, right? I mean, every time I feel like I talk to your team, I hear something new, some new initiative that's going on in this area. So I, I'm curious um, what you're hearing from clients and, and how that's changed. 
To put it in context, really, investors are becoming increasingly aware of the positive change that uh, they can affect on um, global issues, global concerns, from um, climate change to human rights, etc. We have seen in the last uh, 20 or 30 years how more and more of that is becoming prominent, um, whether it is because asset managers and asset owners are understanding their role in the whole management of their um, funds or investments for the entire stakeholders as opposed to just their clients to actually having very clear commitment such as um, Paris Agreement or UMPRI commitments that translates itself to some integration of ESG in the investment process. For us, what we used to see before are a lot of company, a lot of our investors asking us about how we uh, fundamentally look at a company, what is it that we do in order to see how the management are investing uh, their time and effort to, uh, to give us a, um, an economic return, to now asking us also to understand the impact of that particular company on the world, whether it is on the climate side or whether it is on the social social governance side uh, or the impact of the product that those companies are producing. So for us, we have become much more aware and also having to go back to our client with much more detail in terms of how we are producing the returns, how we are seeking to, to deliver for them risk-adjusted returns. So for us, that sort of journey meant that we become much more formal in the way that we were incorporating ESG issues and our clients are much more formal in asking us to either talk about how we engage with companies. So it's not about whether you would incorporate ESG, but actually how you are incorporating ESG in your portfolios or for your clients. And what used to be um, a nice to have, I think it is now becoming much more of a have to have uh, in your um, investment process. And in terms of, uh, you know, regional differences there, there's long been this perception that um, European investors have been ahead of the curve on the topic. Uh, Australian investors have been ahead of the curve. Maybe some other geographies, not so much. Is that still true today in terms of your day-to-day conversations with clients or is everyone really advanced in this area? I think we're seeing increasingly conversations from other geographies. It's it's true that Europe is trailblazing this, but actually we're seeing more and more requirements from our US clients, from our Asian clients, from our Middle Eastern clients typically obviously from our Australian clients, asking us how we are incorporating ESG for their portfolios, asking us to quantify that ESG incorporation and still demanding a very strong risk-adjusted returns for their portfolios. So they are now thinking much more in terms of how we're delivering their returns across all the regions. It's not... Um, it's maybe not as formalized as Europe with all the regulation that's happening in Europe, but we are increasingly seeing demand and requests from, from clients from all over the world. Let's talk about this idea of how you and the team are implementing it, because I think it's it's really important and there's a lot of nuance to it. And there's certainly no 
you know, standard accepted way for integrating ESG into uh, an investment process. And I know that you and your team have taken a very intentional pr- approach with the way that that you have constructed your model here. Uh, and in fact, you've uh, just laid this out in a insights piece that uh, investors will be able to find on bearings.com under the viewpoints section called ESG inequities, better outcomes require better practices. So in this piece, um, you talk about the th- three key principles that you and your team are, are implementing. Uh, first is integration. Second is a focus on forward-looking dynamics. And third is active engagement over exclusion. So there's a lot to unpack there in each of those. I think it's really fundamental to understanding the approach and, and why you've, you've chosen these particular principles. So let's take those one by one. Let's start with integration. Um, Tell me what you mean when you are uh, talking about integrating ESG analysis into fundamental analysis. When we talk about integrating ESG analysis, it means that we have to take into account every material issue that faces the company in terms of its environmental, social, governance issues. When analyzing the company. So ESG analysis is a core part of our fundamental research. And it is the responsibility of every single investment professional who is looking after a company, who is researching a company, to incorporate ESG issues in in their fundamental company analysis. They can be challenging, of course, and they can be hard to assess quantitatively. But for us, we think the incorporation of ESG provides a more complete picture of the risks and the returns that can be achieved by the company. We are looking at the company holistically. We are integrating every factor that um, faces the company, whether it is financial or whether it is E and S and G into the company analysis. Data providers obviously have now um, been uh, in the market for a while providing ESG data or ESG analysis, we found that that data is helpful in the way that broker research is helpful, but really isn't current or is available for every single uh, company that we look at or invest for our clients. And therefore, for us, we found that integrating ESG by our analysts using our view, using, as in many cases, our own analysis of the material issues that are facing the company in terms of ESNG meant that we were able to much more understand holistically what the company is, but also to achieve those risk-adjusted returns that we were talking about for our clients. And so is that basically why you've chosen to have the ESG analysis sit with the investment analyst as to, I I know another model would be to have a a separate ESG team responsible for analyzing this for for each company, but is is it because of the experience they already have with these companies? Yes, I think it is very um, important to say that we were very deliberate in saying that ESG analysis and integration is part of the fundamental research. And the analyst that typically has been meeting with the company for years, sometimes decades in our case, knows the company inside out. And therefore, they are also the best to assess uh, the company in terms of its ESG-ness. In order to aid that, though, we have created a very clear 
way or clear method of looking at ESG that falls into our qualitative assessment of a company. So when we look at a company qualitatively, we look to see how the company sustains its business practices and its franchise going forward. We look at how the company manages its balance sheet and and therefore the need for financing for the growth that we are looking for and also obviously governance issues. So what we've done is Uh, we've organized all of the ESG factors into those categories that aid our fundamental analysts to understand the actual quality attributes of a company. So we have nine factors that are all linked up ESG factors, if you like, that affect those particular quality attributes that we are analyzing. And those ESG factors range from how you manage your resources to how you look after your employees to the impact of the processes that you are implementing on the environment, but also on the products that you are selling. And finally, also anything that might affect the longevity of your franchise or your business going forward, including um, environmental impact, including business practices, fair play, so uh, social policies, as well as um, other anti-bribery, anti-competitive practices. The whole idea here is that we are really thinking of ESG in terms of fundamental analysis. We are really assessing, integrating ESG in the way that we um, analyze uh, the company qualitatively. We can't rely on just ESG analysts. We really have to make our fundamental analysis be on ESG being part and parcel of us understanding the company and understanding its quality and actually attribute a value to that ESG in our valuation of the company. Yeah, I think that's really important point that um, that that ESG is being ingrained in the fundamental analysis uh, itself. And and for our listeners, the ESG framework that Hadir just referenced with the nine uh, categories that's laid out very clearly in the insights paper that I referenced earlier. So um, go and check that out on bearings.com if you want to dive into that. It's quite robust, and you can get a sense uh, of all the factors that that Hadir and team are are considering. Um, you know, one of the things that that you were talking about is is thinking about what all of this means for a company going forward. So, um, you know, you can have both ESG risks, but also ESG opportunities. And I I think that maybe that's not as well thought of or understood or recognized. The fact that there could be opportunities in equities based on companies improving their own ESG practices. So that kind of leads us to talk about the second principle, which is taking a dynamic forward-looking approach as opposed to focusing on the kind of current state or static um, situation that a company finds itself in when it comes to ESG. So tell me about that concept, Hadir, and why you all are focused so much on the direction of travel as opposed to the starting point. It's our belief that share prices of a company are affected by its outlook. We believe that if the financial situation of a company improves and this earnings increase, particularly if it is um, unrecognized by the market, so cheap relative to to, um, expectations, then that company's share price should go in line of that improvement or improvement in return capital employed, et cetera, of the company. 
We believe the same principle actually holds in terms of ESG. And in assessing a company, we believe that if the company is improving its practices going forward, um, whether it is environmental, social or governance, that company should be rewarded by the market for doing that. It becomes less risky as an investment. You become more confident in the earnings delivery. You become more confident in the strategy of a company. But also you have more of a belief that the company is using the scarce resources that it has very wisely, which means better franchise, which means more secure margins, which means less chance that you will have bad surprises on the environmental or social side. So therefore, for us, if the company has traditionally been very good in terms of delivering um, on earnings, usually what happens is that the company's share price follows. We believe it's the same concept. If the company is, is moving in the right direction in terms of improving practices and delivering on its E, S, and G commitments, the markets would reward that. So any examples come to mind, I guess, in terms of where you've actually seen this in practice, either positive or negative, where, where a company has changed its practices materially and, and, and there's been a real notable impact from that? What has been very clear for us is that when a company improves its practices, whether it is on its environmental footprint or reusing circular economy or um, in terms of the impact of what it produces on the society, it's been rewarded uh, for it by the market. But it is much more of a, a harder connection to, to prove. What has been really proved very clearly is the other way, which is if the company's practices have been deteriorating in terms of ESG, the market really did not like it and the share price suffered because of that. So for us, actually looking at company dynamically implies that we can look for companies that are geared for positive change because over time that investment will become less risky and we will be rewarded for, for holding it. But the other side of it, that if we have deterioration in ESG, then that company becomes, in some cases, uninvestable. Yeah, yeah. So, so it really it makes sense to... Um Analyze analyze both the risks and the opportunities because the directional change could be in either way. Yes. So in some cases, it is not very clear for you to say that you have not uh, invested in a company because of ESG issues because you haven't included it in your portfolio. But if you believe that there's going to be an environmental issue with a company or there's going to be a fine because you don't think the governance or the controls that the company is exerting are good enough, for example, the lack of a whistleblower policy, etc. That makes you much more uncomfortable about owning that company. And therefore, for us, it was very important to quantify ESG issues and include them in uh, our required rate of return or a cost of equity. Another way of saying it, we, we think that ESG as a risk and a reward should be looked at in the same way. So if the company is improving its ESG practices, actually it is less risky and our required rate of return for that company's cost of equity maybe should come down because of that. While companies who are still uh, behaving in a different way in terms of ESG or their practices are not up to speed and deteriorating, then the cost of equity should reflect that in the same way that you would reflect macro risk or financial risks. So for us, ESG is really embedded. It's really in the heart of what we do in terms of assessing investments. 
I, that's a really important point because it's not just a qualitative assessment. There, it's it's very much a quantitative assessment. The way you and your team do it, as you've just referenced, um, incorporating it into your cost of equity model or required return. So it really does impact um, what you and the team uh, assess to be appropriate valuations for these equities. So thank you for for making that point. Um, the third and final principle that you talked about in the paper is this concept of active engagement over exclusion. So this is, I don't know if you would agree if this this one is maybe more controversial, but I, I do see a lot out there in, in terms of commentary in the industry around whether or not exclusion lists are the right way to go. Um, if if investors should should exclude uh, sectors that are you know known polluters, et cetera. So um, you have taken the approach uh, that that engagement is more effective or impactful over the long term rather than simply excluding sectors completely. Tell me about the rationale there and, and tell me a little bit more about this active engagement philosophy. There is really no one size fits all. As you said, different approaches to ESG lead to different outcomes. One of the approaches is this exclusion principle where you would just decide to exclude a whole sector. But we also want to become responsible investors and therefore not exclude wholesale sectors. After all, um, we conduct 4,000 meetings a year. Our investment professionals see those companies. And I think we should be able to say that if we actively engage with those companies, we can mitigate some of those risks. We do need materials, for example, to grow in order to get to the dream of clean energy and a much better future uh, in terms of environmental uh, resources going forward. We actually need those materials that are coming out of the earth in order for us to deliver uh, on our um, commitments, for example, on the Paris Agreement, etc. The only way you do that properly is for the companies that you're investing in to responsibly mitigate uh, the environment impact of those mines as opposed to just say, okay, we're not going to touch them and therefore they can do what they like. We don't believe that is the right thing to do. We believe that as we engage with companies, as we ask them to improve their disclosures, as we work with them to improve their practices, it is a much better way to get to the outcome than simply excluding them from client portfolios. And so can you give me an example of how that's actually worked in in practice? So for example, in a lot of the companies that are in emerging markets, we have uh, been engaging with them in order to either uh, ask them to deliver more in terms of their environmental footprint or for them to improve their practices. So we have been engaging with companies to um, improve their policies, to publish them on websites, to make them aware about the impact of what they're doing on the environment, on on other people. So our analysts actually go and visit those companies and, um, and engage with them in order to improve their practices. There is um, not a clear one-size-fits-all. Every single company and country have their own uh, local practices, but what we're trying to do is work with the companies in order to improve their practices, in order for us to achieve our um, requirements from the company in terms of their practices. 
when we think it is more more effective for us to achieve that by collaboration, we have even led those collaboratives engagement with the companies, um, whether we, it is as part of us being a part of Climate 100 Plus or via us actually talking to the companies themselves. Active engagement for us can actually help bring that positive change that I've been talking about. So if you engage with the companies you and ask them to improve their practices or um, improve their disclosures, what you are actually doing is trying to unlock value for your um, shareholders. Because as we are engaging with those companies and improving their practices, we're actually making them less risky. We are making them sustain their margins. We're making their businesses more sustainable going forward. We are engaging with them to improve the, the returns for our clients. And I can I can definitely see how that approach can be more impactful and possibly drive more positive change uh, rather than um, you know deciding to just avoid a sector completely. As, as you were kind of alluding to, you think about uh, you know a big goal like a net zero emissions type of thing, and I think you talked about this in the paper. You know you're going to need some traditional raw materials to get there along the way, whether it's copper, aluminum, nickel. So rather than avoiding, you know, in this case, the mining sector, for instance, are there ways you can engage with miners to, uh, you know, help their businesses become more sustainable and that sort of thing. So that, that intuitively, that approach to me um, makes sense. And I can, I can kind of wrap my head around how you could make a positive change via that approach. All we're trying to do is improve the risk-adjusted returns for our clients. While we're doing that, if we can achieve better ESG practices, that's good for all stakeholders. It's good for people, it's good for planet, it's good for fair play. So for us, just engaging with the companies is uh, not just the be-all and end-all, it's just a way of us augmenting the returns for uh, from investing in those companies. So what's next here? You know, we, we talked about how this space continues to evolve. Um, and I'm curious, you know, I think you and the team are as involved as anyone in, uh, you know, what's next in this space. So as you look forward, you know, look ahead to 2021 and, and the next couple of years ahead, I'm curious what you see coming down the pipe that that may change as regards to ESG and implementing it into an investment process like yours. I'm curious if, if COVID's accelerated anything here, um, but, but what's next from your perspective? What's been very, very clear during this crisis is that uh, policymakers, um, particularly in Europe, are talking about um, ensuring that the pandemic does not derail a green, um, the greener economy going forward and that the, the actual recovery should be a green recovery. So from our point of view, we're, we're seeing that there is more and more really talk about this, real discussion about this. So for us, actually, we think this, is, this incorporation of ESG into analysis is becoming much more mainstream. After all, if you manage your environmental resources better, 
your margins are better, your cash flows are better, the chances of you getting a fine are lower. If you manage the social impact of your of what you are actually making, that will make it much more sustainable. That will mean all stakeholders around you will be much happier in the delivery of your um, of your returns. Plus also, if you are governed better, if there's more diversity, if there's more social equity uh, going forward, that means the whole society is safer and better. So for us, what we think is happening is really a movement towards better ESG practices, and that necessarily for us will mean better outcomes. We think the pandemic actually shone the light through all of that as opposed to put it at risk. What's really clearly important for us is this whole understanding of the difference between incorporating ESG in your an analysis, in your portfolio construction, which is what we do, but also managing for a certain outcome. So some of our clients ask us, for example, to manage to a certain carbon footprint. Some of our clients ask us to, um, to engage with companies, particularly in very difficult um, emerging markets areas, in order to improve um, practices that uh, will help with labor issues or will help with social issues. So for us, doing this is fundamental, but it is actually where the whole world is going. I think the idea of a green recovery, that's the first time I've heard it put that way, but it sort of brings the, the phrase green shoots into new, into new light. Um, and, and I think, yeah, there was some discussion around, uh, you know, how would, how would some of these ESG factors kind of, uh, evolve through COVID, the COVID crisis and whether it would be less of a focus, more of a focus, but it sounds like based on what you're saying, uh, if anything, it's kind of sharpened investors' minds around the importance of incorporating all these factors, um, not only for the economic reasons, of course, but but for the for the positive impact reasons too. Um, well, Hadira, I, I guess as we as we finish up here and and you think about again looking forward to the next couple of years, is there anything that you would leave our listeners with? Any final messages from you on this uh, very important topic? Only to say that um, ESG analysis is playing an increasingly integral role in understanding the risk facing the companies, but also the potential that this actually can mean for a business model or actually just getting opportunities in, in that space. Ultimately, it'll allow us to form a very good view about a company, but also allow us to invest in areas where we think that ESG delivery should sustain and increase the return for our shareholders. Approaches to ESG analysis are different. Um, they range all the way from avoidance and exclusion to just integrating to advocacy, which is where we are. Uh, we, we work on, on that side, which is the active management and integration, but also um, us talking to companies about ESG issues. The whole idea of this is for us to seek to deliver better, superior risk-adjusted returns for our clients. If you can achieve that while seeking to achieve better ESG practices, it's a win-win situation. Well, this has been a very insightful discussion. What I would do is just point our listeners again back to uh, the insights paper that Hadir has just 
written. ESG and equities, better outcomes require better practices. Uh, I think it's really worth reading um, if you'd like to dive deeper into this and understand some of these philosophies in a little more detail. And, and even this paper, uh, in my opinion, is, is just sort of the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more to, to peel back. So uh, the team has a, t- a tremendous amount of expertise in this area, and I'm sure uh, would, would love to continue sharing that and in podcasts and papers and everywhere else here. So um, th- thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your, your insights. Thank you. Thanks for listening to episode number two of season three of Streaming Income. Remember to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you are the first to hear about our latest episodes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.